This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, yeah. get some vitamin D, breathe yeah. some fresh air, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm here with my co host and friend, Laura Spath. Hi, Judy. Hello. Um, how has your week been going? Oh, man, it's been crazy. I'm still traveling every week, and so it's been good, but I'm, um, I've been having fun filming the what I eat in restaurant videos. Um, so that's been a good challenge. I'm like, now i now I'm approaching it like a challenge of like, name a restaurant where you don't think you can eat carnivore and I'll show you how I do it. So like doing Olive Garden recently was like, I didn't even think I could do it. And it, it also, I was so shocked at how easy it was to like find this awesome plate of meat at a pasta place. So it was really fun. Yeah, that's so funny because I mean, I told you offline, but I never thought I could eat there. And so if my husband's ever craving pasta, I'm like, sorry, I can't eat there. Maybe I can have like a piece of chicken, but、right. that's it. But when I saw your plate, I was like, oh, I should volunteer that well, we can go eat there because it looked really, really good. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's not like the best value for your money, like eat at home, obviously.、Yeah. But if you're out with friends or you have family and people, it's a popular restaurant. People want to go there a lot of times or just go places like that. And you don't have to always kind of be stuck at home or, you know, be the person not eating. I often am not eating in restaurants when other people are eating because I'm not hungry or there's nothing I can eat. But、um, right. you have a lot of options, you know, it's not, it's kind of up to you. So while you were traveling, there were people that asked about our, Podcast episode with Dr. Sai Vess.、Um, you know, a lot of the conversation was about what is our relationship with food?、Uh, how did we get obese or sick? But there was another portion that Dr. Sai Vess brought up about why maybe Dr. Saladino is adding carbs back and why he thinks it's good to stimulate insulin. And so I wanted to bring upon that subject、uh, why we didn't really address it with Dr. Sai Vess. It was very much intentional. And then a little bit of the discussion of that from 
the low carb conference Boca Raton. My understanding of what Dr. Sivest brought up in that conversation, as well as um, he touched a little bit upon it when I interviewed him a while ago on Nutrition with Judy, but his essential thought is that he has veteran carnivores, which he defines as at least one year, right? I think it was more like three to five years, like people who've been carnivore for multiple years, like we, t- I think this, this information, which is why I do think it's important that we discuss it is because this is going to be talked about a lot more in carnivore up, up and coming. And if you've been doing carnivore now for a while, if you're a brand new beginner, like maybe don't worry about this episode, go yeah. re-listen to that one about how to stick to the diet and why we fail at other diets. But, um, this is going to be something that people are talking about a lot more. And I think, I do think we avoided it with him on purpose, but mm-hmm. I think mainly because we didn't want to go back and forth about it. And I think it's such a small percentage of people that this applies to. And so Judy's going to um, kind of explain it here, but I, I just, we avoided it obviously because that wasn't the importance of it. We, I've gotten so many messages of people who appreciated that episode for what it was. And I think that you and I had agreed, we wanted to keep it about our relationship with food And because he has so many amazing takeaways, things that changed my life. And I know so many of you have been um, impacted by that and told me that you've re-listened to that multiple times and you will continue to re-listen to that as you're struggling, which is what we wanted that episode to be. Right. And the biggest thing was we talked to him at the conference and we went back and forth for an hour and we still didn't change any of his opinion. And so that's why I knew that if we got into it, we would go around in circles just like we did in person. And I think it's just a totally different subject than this topic on mental health and our relationship with food. But with all that said, he has said in his talk at the Low Carb Conference, he mentioned that there's a population of veterans that are carnivore for a number amount of years, and they are really healing. They were obese at one point, um, and now they are very, very, very lean. A lot of them fall into the lean mass hyper responder, meaning that their LDL is high, but um, very high, and their HDL is high. And when I mean LDL is high, I mean above probably 500. And their HDL is also high, and their triglycerides are very low. And what he says that these people are doing of his patients are that they are starting to regress in the wrong way. So long term, they're super fat adapted, they eat maybe two pounds of meat a day. And again, they're very, very thin, they on the BMI, they would likely be considered underweight. And so for these specific carnivores, he is saying that in his clinical practice that he starts to see triglyceride markers go up and um, A1C go up, and that they're just not doing as good as they once were doing a meat only carnivore diet. And so his outcome from all that, and then doing some, I guess, evidence based research, is that long term carnivore is not ideal, but only in terms of the high fat. So he believes you could do carnivore long term, but you have to have days of Uh, really lean proteins, or maybe just a lunch that's really lean. Um, It'll depend on obviously your physiology. But he says that we need to be able to stimulate insulin enough. And you can do that by eating really lean protein, meaning that you don't really have fat in the diet. And then your body is forced to use insulin or forced to use the protein converted to gluconeogenesis, the blood sugar goes up a lot, and then it stimulates insulin. And then that will then eradicate the issues of the triglycerides going up on so on, so on and so forth. 
Hang on, hang on. Let me clarify this. Yeah. So before you say that, let me add something to this that helped me understand what he was saying is that essentially your insulin is this like use it or lose it function. And when people are insulin resistant, they're obese, we obviously need to, you know, lower your insulin levels, lower your A1C. And then over time, when you have this like radically low stable blood sugar all the time, his argument is that like you use it or lose it essentially. And that you then become almost like a type one diabetic where your insulin doesn't function and your blood sugar just never moves ever. And maybe that's not a good thing to have this like perfectly stable blood sugar hundred percent of the time, which I do think in some ways you and I agree with that element and that you need to have a little fluctuation like this constantly low, never moving blood sugar, um, is not a goal necessarily. And I do think in the carnivore space, a lot of people are like showing off their CGMs of their blood sugar that never moves ever. And, and that's somehow a, a, a marker of health. And maybe, maybe his argument is that it's not. And that over time, things like those triglycerides and your A1C will then start to regress because you're almost then becoming incapable of, um, pushing out that insulin. Um, again, this is years of very, very strict carnivore. Um, and so you do need to, his argument is that you do need to spike that insulin so that your body remembers that it needs to do that. And it keeps the function. He essentially says that when you are so fat adapted that your body now if there's any bit of gluconeogenesis or glucose that comes from your meats, your cells are like, no, no, thanks. I'm good. And it'll close off the ability for the cells to use the, the sugars from your meats. And then it gets to your liver because there there's this excess energy and then your liver then converts it to triglycerides. So that's his theory. And he says it's through his patients and I just haven't seen that. So that was my argument with my clientele was, well, that's weird because I haven't seen that at all. You know, the thing is he has data, but again, it's with his clients. So based on HIPAA compliance, I don't think he could share it. So then it becomes really hard to argue his set of rules, right? Or his set of data. And I have seen triglycerides go up, not necessarily up, but just that they're still elevated, meaning they're above like 100. And it's because often people are eating off plan or they're eating actually a lot of protein and not enough fat. So that's where I don't really see what he's talking about. I do understand the the way that glucagon works. There is truth that if you eat too much fat, that over time that it can become triglycerides. Just like if you eat too many carbs, it can become triglycerides. So from an energy perspective, yes, if you are overindulging in all calories, they can become triglycerides and that's not ideal. And when I brought that up to him, he said, yes, but these guys eat a lot and they're super, super lean. So it's something other than that. It's just that their insulin's not, I guess, uh, stimulated enough. And I just haven't seen that enough in my clients. I haven't seen it in some of the other veterans. And I usually think there's something else going on. There's another lurking variable that may not be as part of this context. And that's where I just find it to be odd. For example, there was a long time ago, um, Jimmy Moore did a lean protein diet. So he did like PSMF every single day. And his blood sugar 
because of the the protein is a thermogenic effect, meaning that it requires energy to break it down within the system. And that's why you only absorb certain amount of calories from protein. He was getting into hypoglycemia every time he would eat that. The opposite happened with Jimmy Moore. It's not that his blood sugar went up. He actually had a drop in blood sugar just because of these really super lean proteins. And I think he did that like maybe four or five years ago. From my experience with my clients, I feel like if you eat a sufficient amount of protein and fat, your blood sugar will go up anyway. I I did that for the first year of carnivore. I ate probably two ribeyes a day with a good amount of fat and my blood sugar would go into the 160s. Dr. Sivest can probably argue that I'm not insulin uh, sensitive at that point, and that's maybe why. It's not natural in nature at all to eat super lean protein without fat. I just interviewed Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, and she talks about how no muscle meat comes with meat alone. It's also with cartilage, it's also with collagen, and it's also with an abundance of fat. And so everything that people are saying of this move and push towards lean protein. Yes, you may lose weight because you're eating such low calories, but I don't think it's the way to optimal health. So he's saying to cause that insulin spike, you can do it in multiple ways. And the first way is to have carbs of some kind. You could have sweet potatoes, you could have berries, you could have honey. He and I are the first people to say that we couldn't handle that mentally, right? I, you couldn't incorporate, I can't be somebody who incorporates a small amount of carbs occasionally just to create that insulin spike and not mentally go crazy. And he also admits that about himself, uh, which I think is important to realize is that that's, so that's not possible. So his counter to that, to stay carnivore is to do those extreme pro or to do those, um, lean, lean, high fat days. And so I almost was, we were like doing, when he was giving his talk, I actually was like almost on board with that until like thinking like, oh, maybe I'll drop down to like 50, 60% fat for the day and then go back up to 70 or 80. But when he said it was under 20% fat, like where his, the way to create that insulin spike is to um, drop all the way down to like essentially under 20% fat for several days in a row. um, I, I think that's, that's where I lost the my buy-in from it because a lot of these people that we were talking to his clients even were very lean and they were doing this and they couldn't stop losing weight and they were miserable. Um, you know, they like felt terrible. Um, I, I think it would cause me to have like major cravings. Um, if I was trying to like live on actual chicken breast and eat that lean, um, and under, under eat that many calories, like you would feel terrible and the point to cause that insulin spike um, just seemed like it wouldn't be worth it to me because of all the problems that it would cause hormone issues, um, energy issues, mood, you know, digestion, all those things would just be tanked. If you want to lose weight, doing lean protein is ideal because the caloric intake of eating lean protein, it's really hard to overeat, like just chicken breasts all throughout the day. So the chance of losing weight is high. And also every gram of fat versus every gram of protein, there's a like, it's double the amount for fat. So from that perspective, it makes sense why people want to use that and lose weight. And Dr. Sives, he always brings up the head founder of the diet doctor, he's this really tall, lean guy, and he cut down his fat and he lost weight. Okay, 
fine. But that person also ate berries. And so that's like the context that's not there. So he has been stimulating insulin with because he was never a carnivore. That person is keto. Right. It's just he ate a bit of fat. So he was stimulating insulin. So where's the logic with that? But aside from that, I just know people in real life with clients that have tried the lean protein and all it does is it makes them crave sugars and it makes them crave other foods. Like you said, it causes them to have low energy, low mood. Um, They're, they're starting to be in that mental space of, I really want to go back to the pantry. I really want some fat. I really want some junk food. And they're fighting those battles that wasn't really there on carnivore. And sure, maybe they're not losing as much weight as if they just went lean protein, But I think this Band-Aid solution is not a long-term healings because at the end of the day, are we going to do these lean days for the rest of our lives? Can we really do lean chicken breasts for a full day until we're 80, 90 years old? And if we can- But it was like day, it's like like several days in a row to be able to really create that. And then I think that, you know, I'm much more under the, um, or like just in the- idea that you should, you know, if you've been eating ribeyes with butter on top of it and you're stalled in your weight loss or you're gaining weight, then cut out the butter and like make a slight adjustment or cut to maybe a leaner cut of meat rather than being a ribeye with the butter. But you don't have to go from ribeyes with butter down to lean chicken breast, right? There's like 15 different levels of, you know, fat intake that you could have that are between that. Um, And I am finding that like, I still see my blood sugar is not stable constantly all the time. And depending on what I eat and how late I eat and how much I eat and what my fat intake is, pork belly versus eating pork loin, those are two drastically different levels of fat. If I eat a whole bunch of pork loin, the next morning, my blood sugar is much higher. And so I think it's just such a very tiny, tiny percentage of the population that might fall into this category of having this like perfectly stable blood sugar for years on end that is seeing some sort of problem and to then just talk openly about, which is important to those people you disagree with him, right? I don't have no experience, but you disagree with him on how that should be um, approached, uh, which I completely understand, but I, but to be able then to talk about it, I think I would hear that speech and think like, well, I have to eat carbs or I need a cheat day once a month to make sure that I'm not healthy. And I think that the majority of people are just having a hard enough time sticking to this diet in general and don't fall into that category of people that have been strict for years um, and are, are in this boat, you know. I personally think that these people that are saying they eat the two pounds, they eat super high fat, I don't know if they're eating enough. I, I think there's something else just from a human chemistry perspective, there's something missing. And I think if we were to talk to each individual, we would see some nuance. And I I just have a hard time seeing that this is true. I'm not saying Dr. Syvest is um, saying something that's not true. I just don't see that. I mean, like you mentioned, if I eat a lot of protein, even if there's fat, as long as I'm eating enough protein, my insulin is triggered and my blood sugar is higher. If I eat three pounds of ribeye, that is almost 70% fat, and I don't add any butter, or if I did add butter, my blood sugar goes up because of the gluconeogenesis. So it's so odd to me that these people, they don't have any blood sugar issues. I would think that if they're eating just lean protein, the chance of blood sugar going up is a little bit higher. 
Um, there's also the worries about uric acid, um, ammonia buildup, the body being more acidic because there's no fat to balance the levels. I mean, you're now you're forcing your body not to have energy from carbs, not to have energy from fat. So now you're forcing your body to use a fuel source that was never intended to be a fuel source. Proteins are meant to be building blocks in the body. And you only use gluconeogenesis as needed, not because you're forcing the body. And that just seems so counterintuitive to me as to this is the healing answer. Right. And then the part that was harder to understand was when you asked him what high fat diet is. And I, before we recorded, I want to, to make sure that we're quoting him correctly. I went to go see his YouTube video and he says, anything high fat is above 35% of your total calories as fat. And so I wanted to make sure that I understood him correctly. So I did a little bit of the math. What he means is low fat, or he argues, just eat grass finished animals. And if you eat that, they're really lean. And so I looked into that. I was like, I want to see how lean these animals are, right? Because if that's the reason, and we are just eating grain fed, and therefore they're so overweight, and we're eating too much fat. So I just wanted to understand his logic. And I looked into it. And a, a grass fed steak with no added butter, just some type of beef is 58% fat. And this is grass fed, grass finished. So that would be off the table. Um, A filet mignon, I was like, oh, maybe that's lean, right? That's 42% fat. Round top roast, 45%. Chicken thigh, 58% fat. So then the only ones that would fit that 35% or less is a chuck steak, chicken breast, skinless, which is 21% fat, and then maybe shrimp, which is 12%. And even salmon, um, even wild salmon doesn't fit. Or like a bunch of egg whites. All right. Or egg whites, which again, has no nutrition. Um, It has maybe a little bit of magnesium proteins. And some of the proteins are very highly reactive to some sensitive individuals. When I hear this, I just, I struggle so much with it because again, I don't see it. And I would love to see a data set and then interview these people, but I don't even have the ability to do that. So I do think you can eat carnivore long-term. I am technically in that spot and I'm on the leaner side. Sure. I probably have like, I don't know, some weight I could lose. I'm not as lean as those people we saw, but I'm relatively healthy. My blood sugar can go up and down 20 points eating just meat. Right. And depending on whether I eat some chicken thighs or add super fatty ribeye, I never eat lean protein. My blood sugar still goes up and down. So is it because I'm still unhealthy or is it that the data is not there? And I've been doing meat only, uh, almost meat only for almost five years now. So it's just really, really hard for me to comprehend. Maybe there is this element of them eating so lean or only grass finished or not having adequate fats or just not having adequate calories. I think a lot of people really don't understand like how many calories are they actually eating. Um, And they're under eating for a long period of time, which I think does, you know, we see people who are eating so lean and under eating for such a long period of time and their blood sugar never moves. And that's kind of, interesting to look at. Like to me, that shows that there's maybe, you know, you're not getting enough uh, energy and and nutrients. And so you're stabilizing that way. I think there's just such a small percentage of people also who are, I I do feel better when I'm a hundred percent strict all the time. I mentally feel better. I physically feel better. I have less cravings. However, it doesn't mean I'm a hundred percent strict all the time. Right. Right, right. I know that's where I feel better. There's even that phrase that this, um, uh, a woman who's in the world carnivore tribe, her name is Jennifer. And I have a quote that I have, and I actually, I'm going to pull it up right now, but I use this quote all the time. Somebody was asking, uh, in that 
world carnivore tribe. Um, can I do 90% zero carb? Um, can I be a hundred percent? Like, what should I do? And her quote, which was like four years ago, I wrote this down. She said, 90% zero carb is excruciating. A hundred percent is much easier. And you're not just getting 10% more results. And I believe that truly, I truly believe that where I feel the difference for me between eating 90% carnivore and hundred percent carnivore is infinitely different. It's infinitely easier. I feel infinitely better. There's not a 10% difference in results. All that being said, it doesn't mean I eat hundred percent strict all the time. It doesn't mean that most people don't eat hundred. They, even if you're incorporating avocados occasionally and pickles and, you know, some mushrooms and onions or like what a piece of dark chocolate, like most people fall into that range where they find the foods that they can tolerate that don't make them feel bad that don't trigger them to have issues. And that's where they fall. So there's not this huge population of people who fall into that category who are needing to make these like drastic changes uh, in, you know, to avoid this, that, that he's finding, I guess. There's a psychology element to a lot of this. Yeah. When you are overweight, and then you become the thinnest you ever wanted and dreamed of, there's a psychological part that needs healing. And I've been through that too. So there was a period I was a little overweight. And then I got to my thinnest weight ever. But there was a lot of healing. Like I used to have dreams that I was back at my old weight and things like that. And I wonder if a lot of these people that were able to get to two, 300 pounds, and then all of a sudden, they're wearing like a size zero. And like, literally, these are how some of these people are now. There's got to be an element of how did you go from eating that much and being that um, I guess, insulin resistant and unwell to now being thinner than the majority of the population? Are you sure you're eating enough and eating sufficiently? You know, when we think about how uh, Dr. Agustin talks about how insulin, um, the beta cell dysfunction takes a long time to heal. If they had 30 years of insulin resistance and really dysfunction where they were obese, did they really heal that well of that much beta cell dysfunction in three years? that they're so thin to the point that it's they're underweight. And that's the logic to me of ev- besides anything else, right. that there's a gap for me. And, and, and then I think about a lot of the really long-term veterans, right? The, the people that are um, 10 year plus carnivores, there's not many that are super underweight. Most of them are normal weight. And if you think of that, well, then are these people doing it wrong or that are these mega carnivore veterans not eating well, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. There, there's just not, not, there's no rhyme or reason of if you eat carnivore five years or 10 years, you will now look this skinny. In actuality, you, you look well, right? We think about the Mongolians. We think about um, some of these other tribes that were carnivore or meat only. They're not sickly thin. They're actually, they look plumper. Right. And so I, I just think, are you guys doing carnivore right? And I know that sounds like I'm blaming, but there's, there's just a gap for me because I work with so many people and I don't see the consistency that, um, that he is bringing up. And I know granted it's only a select few that have that type of personality. I mean, I just don't see, uh, historically ancestrally, it's just not consistent. We don't see foods that have 35% fat. We just don't. No. And this is just not going to happen in nature in in any way. It's just, you know, you have to force yourself to get to that point. And, it, and the other thing is it doesn't feel good to eat that way. 
You know, I think also, like you said, to lose this massive amount of weight, you have to be obsessive about it to a certain extent. Like I had to be obsessive and I got to this point. I talk about it often on here where I was too obsessive about it. I got too thin. I was under eating. I was eating too lean, all these things, because to be able to do make this radical change in your life, it has to become an obsession in a lot of ways. Um, and then in order to get that thin, it just doesn't happen naturally. And so the, right. the only way that I was able to maintain being that thin was to under eat. And I was doing that with me only uh, and not realizing it at the time. And I think that's where yeah. there is this element of like carnivores X, you know, like, I mean, even when people saw pictures from that low carb, comp, low carb conference, they're like, why are the experts not super skinny? I'm like, because maybe that's not an indication of- right what's the most healthy. And I think we said on a different podcast too, of like, just because you know, all the information doesn't mean it's easy to follow first of all. But second of all, being model waif thin isn't necessarily an indication of health. And we have to be aware of that. Yes. um, I fully agree. And I I think it's odd when people's blood sugar does not move at all. I had one client that was like that and um, her blood sugar was stable as literally like one or two points would go up and down if anything when she ate and it would only go up with her exercise and she exercised a little bit too much and then her blood sugar uh, was really really um, imbalanced that at night she would have this hypoglycemic effect and she would wake up and she was very thin I mean she eats as much as she can but again and not controlling other lifestyles. And she was honestly deathly afraid of eating. Like she has a little bit of the um, orthorexic thoughts, but, and, and I only know that because I worked with her, but if you looked at her, she's really thin and she probably would fall into some of this, but even her, like her triglycerides were not high. So it's just, it's just driving me crazy because I don't see this in my data set, but you know, time will tell, like, that's the thing. If people want to go lean protein, they can. And I can tell you that for some people, especially if you had any type of disordered eating, I would be very highly cautious of it. Because I've seen one too many people that have had adverse effects, and it actually caused them to binge. And so the risk is if you're using this to heal, and if yes, if your weight loss is stalling, or it's slower than you'd like, sure, fat is nourishing, and it will heal a lot, but it is higher in calories. But it's that trade off. So do you want the fast weight loss, but potential uh, food obsessions and um, binge hormone or- issues that come along with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, we're we're in sync today, girl. <laughs> okay, so I think we touched everything. Was was there anything else that we missed? Oh, were we going to talk about poofas, or is that separate? Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's bring up the poofa thing. So I, uh, you know, this conversation is kind of old, so I just wanted to touch upon it lightly. So I interviewed with Dr. Paul Mason. He is amazing. And I interviewed him. The interview will not be out by the time this releases. I have like a two, two and a half month lag with all the interviews I do on Nutrition with Judy. So his will be out sometime in April. But essentially, we talked about the PUFAs. And he talked about how it is not the omega-6 in the oils um, and the meats that are the issue. It's the fact that these oils are rancid. So they are spoiled, they're rotten. And what ends up happening is that these oils, as they are heated, they become oxidized many more times. When I did the research for canola oil, these oils are heated above the recommended temperature over six times. And then we heat them in microwaves and while we're cooking. So that's a total of eight times that they're 
overly heated and then they become rotten and rancid. And it's those oxidative species within these oils that are due to the omega-6 and omega-3 content, but it's because of the rancidity that makes the oils tox- toxic. And so when you think of it from a, oh, I need to be scared of PUFAs in meats, it just doesn't hold true because like Dr. Paul Mason said is, you're not eating rotten meat. So you cook the fat and maybe once we cook it, maybe we heat it twice, but it is nowhere near that unstable um, type of oil that are the omega-6s that are in these oils. And so we have just really missed the mark with the PUFAs. And then I started really looking into a lot of the studies that these anti-PUFA advocates are bringing up. And when you look at the studies, a lot of them are actually not sharing what they're saying. Again, it's that reading of the headlines. And some of these that are shown, hey, this is a study that showed that omega-6s are bad. There was one that I shared where it went, um, it it fed all the different types of animal fats and omega six fats like canola oil, soybean oil to these rats, and then they put the order of the lesions in their liver, so the damage to the liver. And it's funny because all the seed oils are first, and then in the mid middle it's tallow, and then at the very end it's lard, it's the pork fat. And so what they actually showed was totally against the omega sixes and the linoleic acid. And then they concluded in that study, which again I got this from a anti PUFA advocate. The study says that we have, um, we cannot conclude anything about the linoleic acid, and it may actually be the fat itself. And and there were many that I found, and I shared the information. And it just makes you think, again, you know, we are being told to be scared of these meats. And then now, um, some of them are selling low PUFA meats. And it's just, was this a marketing tactic? What? Why are we scared of eating pork and chicken from the grocery store? Sure, the grass-fed, pasture-raised, the natural raising are better for the animals in a sense. But from a health perspective, the science doesn't show it. And in terms of the omega-6 count, like that's not even a factor. So they'll talk about ratios and how our ancestors lived in a four-to-one ratio of omega-6 is at four, um, omega-3 is at one. So therefore, we should try to find that ratio. But ratios are just ratios. Um, if you look at canola oil, it's two to one. So therefore, it should be the perfect ratio, right? It's like two to one. And then pork in that ratio, it, the pork is much higher. I think it's like 19 to one. And then even egg is really off as well. So I think people start extrapolating that anything that says omega-6 is bad for me, it's probably going to cause insulin resistance and I should limit it. And I think it's just comes down to that it's being fear-mongering. One of the studies that Dr. Paul Mason brought up was that there were diabetics that ate uh, some type of seed oil. And they showed that for non-diabetics, the blood sugar was balanced, but there was oxidative species for about eight hours in the blood. The people that had non-balanced blood sugar and that um, just had a lot of ups and downs, lots of insulin spikes, their oxidative species and their blood sugar imbalance uh, lasted for 72 hours. So he says, if you're already type 2 diabetic, if you already have insulin resistance, when you eat these oxidative species from the seed oils, you will not be able to tolerate your blood sugar um, as well as if you were just not eating those oils and then if you were less insulin resistant. So I think that's where like somebody like Dr. Paul Saladino is grabbing that it's not the sugar that's causing diabetes. It's actually some of the PUFAs. I think that's where he's extrapolating it and then saying, so therefore don't eat chicken and pork and now even salmon. And I think that we should just really go back to eating an animal-based diet that really considers all animals. Well, I think also too, it's like the amount of them actually matters. And when you're eating something like 
that's fried in canola oil or you're eating um, wings that were fried in soy oil, you're absorbing a lot of those oils and that's not good for you. But if I'm eating a spice mix and the last ingredient is sunflower oil, like people give me a break. This is, there's 15 ingredients in a spice blend. And the last one in this entire jar, what is there like a a quarter of a teaspoon in an entire jar? It's used as like an anti-caking. Like, does that matter as much as eating wings that are fried in some type of rancid oil? And those are, I think that's where people have lost that context of, it says that it's bad. It's now, you know, do what makes you feel good. But like right. every time I post spice blends is where I get it a lot. And then also just like I eat a lot of pork now with beef prices being higher. Uh, and so there's always comments on videos about like pork and, you know, eating conventional pork is bad for you and everything. But like, like you mentioned, first of all, is there the nutritional information just isn't there. It's just not there. But then also if you're concerned about that stuff, like just be aware of the amount that you're getting in certain things. And like, is it really worth stressing about? Yeah. And there was an interesting thing. So I sent that out in my newsletter uh, last week and I had one person email me about this person has done a lot of research on the seed oils and he has come to the conclusion that they are, the evidence is not there to say that the seed oils itself are that bad. And I think that person was on um, Mark's, Mark Smelly Bell. I forget his name, but <laughs> Mark Smelly Bell. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> Power Project podcast. <laughs> so he was on that pro- uh, podcast and I think he talked about it. So I'll put all the links in the show notes. I haven't honestly looked at that, but I know that even Diet Doctor interviewed several people and the the information was that there is no evidence-based research that says seed oils are truly toxic. Some people talked about the ROS of those oxidative species. So I think the data is still out. I don't think there's a definitive saying that yes, it is all the seed oils that are toxic. I think if it's not natural, we should limit it. But even with the seed oils, and I don't talk about this at all in the blog post, because that wasn't my concern of research. My concern was, should we be able to eat pork or chicken? And the answer is yes, we should based on the studies. And even if you look at some of my studies, some of the responses said that omega-6 actually had a protective effect. So there are these little nuances. I didn't touch upon that because, again, that wasn't my research. But I will put some content if you are wanting to look at more of the data in terms of the seed oils. The mix, the research is honestly mixed. Um, I will put some of the links. You guys can do your own research. 98% of what you eat and what you are exposed to, your level of stress, all of these things matter. If you are orthorexic and you're so scared of eating at a restaurant, drinking water that may not be the cleanest, using a straw that's estrogenic, and then worrying about the seed oils in the food and the salt not being um, unrefined, that level of stress, I mean, it it impacts your cortisol and impacts a lot of the things. And, And that fear of going in and that level of orthorexia, I promise you that really affects your health as well. You have to find that balance for you. I think that's where we become overly strict. And some of us need to be, but I think it's just know the context. But my overarching point was, we do not need to be scared of uh, pork and chicken. I I think we should include uh, fatty fish as you can. 
And I think it's like what you said earlier, the brain is such a powerful thing where you're like, this is going to damage me. And so then you eat something and you're like, I feel different. I feel totally different. I absolutely like, it's different if you getting hives or certain spices can cause people, you know, skin issues or digestive issues. and, And all those things are very real. And so I'm not diminishing like actual reactions that people have, but the mental component of if I eat this, this is going to cause me an issue. It might cause you an issue because it's like in your brain that you're going to start, I'm itchy and it's happy. Yeah. Actual food makes people itchy and can cause issues, but also like your brain can tell you that, that this omega six ratio imbalance is causing you issues. And it's really just your, might need to check your uh, sanity. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, I had a client, uh, she she was working with me and I noticed her thiamine levels were really low. She had low energy and she wasn't eating any pork. So I recommended that she start adding more fat. That was another thing was she wasn't eating enough fat. So I said, if you don't want to do butter, why don't you try to get some pork belly? So she got, um, I think she just got the grocery store pork belly and she was eating large amounts of it because she said it was good. I think it was like half her consumption. And then she wrote me back and said, I'm not feeling well. And I think it's the pork belly. And then um, we got to be careful of the PUFAs. And so I gave her all this research about the PUFAs that it's likely that she may be just intolerant to pork, that it's not really the the PUFAs, that it normally takes a lot longer for PUFAs to impact our health. Otherwise, we would have noticed it by just eating canola oil for a month. And then a month later, she wrote me again. And she said that she feels so much better because she removed the pork and she realized and they were having heart palpitations and a lot of things. And then she ended the note with again of, man, we need to watch out for those PUFAs. And if I ever eat pork again, I, I will just get the pasture raised. And so I wrote back and said, you know, you're right. Maybe you are sensitive to pork, um, but get the pasture raised. But again, it is not the PUFAs, but it's so ingrained in so many of us that we're scared right. of these omega-6s. And we're attributing it to things that are not true. And it's just an unfortunate fact. Um, I end the blog post by saying that while we don't believe that all these um, blue zones eat only vegetarian or plant-based, one thing they all eat in common is that they all eat pork and they all use lard to cook their foods. And if these are the communities that live the longest, well, they must be dying from PUFAs and they're not. So it's just something to consider Yeah. And there might be people who don't tolerate like pork fat. Like I wonder when people say they don't, this is where I don't understand either. When I have a lot of people who are like, I don't eat pork. And it's one thing if it's for religious reasons. So I'm, I'm not going to question that, but there's other people that are like, I can't eat pork. I don't digest pork. Well, and this is, I guess, I don't even know if you know, is that because of the fat that's in pork? Like I would understand if somebody couldn't eat pork belly because it caused them digestive issues because of how fatty it is. But are they going to experience those same issues with like a pork loin? Or if, could somebody have an intolerance to pork enough that they couldn't eat like a lean pork loin? So some people just have sensitivities. If it's normally the pork, there's something about the pork that the body just can't tolerate. I do know people that are just, they don't feel as well. Um, I don't know if it's a histamine thing. I don't know if it's um, something that they're just not used to eating pork. I don't think the fat content will really affect that because it's something about the actual proteins in the pork that's likely affecting them. But they also get affected by chicken. There's other people that are sensitive to chicken. I have some clients that are sensitive to beef. And so they eat mostly lamb. It's, it's really all over the map. And, huh. and sometimes like Dr. Syvest was saying is honestly, some people just might be scared because of one really bad incident. And then they put that placebo effect, right? Like I know if I eat right. this, I'm going to really react. And so some of it might just be their 
almost manifesting it to happen to them, right? Because they're generally scared of certain foods. So that could be it as well. I do recommend that if uh, people can tolerate pork, the thing is thiamine is the most abundant in pork than any other food. And uh, we need thiamine, which is vitamin B1 in terms of metabolic metabolism health, and it is not rich in beef. Okay, let me ask you one more question, then we're going to end because I jokingly said this uh, recently, but I am kind of curious. So all, all I'm wanting lately are like chicken wings. And that's I'm eating so many chicken wings, even just from home. It's not even not even from restaurants and stuff. But can I what happens if I eat too many chicken wings? Am I getting a nutri? Is there a nutritional imbalance that's happening because I was all I'm craving is wings? That's funny because I was going through that too. And I noticed that there's carnivores that only crave chicken wings of all things. I wonder if it's the collagen. So chicken wings have a lot of collagen. I wonder if it's that. Um, I don't think there's any nutritional deficiencies. Now beef may have more nutrients in terms of density. So like for every bite, there might just be a little bit more in beef. But from my last remembrance of doing the chicken wing nutrient density, there was zero missing nutrients. That's good. And then Maybe that's true because a lot of the beef that I choose to eat doesn't have a lot of collagen in it. Mm. So like maybe that's where my body's saying I need some more or I don't know. Maybe I just really like wings. Yeah. So you're fine. If you enjoy it, feel free to eat it. <laughs> um, so if you're when you're listening to this, we have the Austin meetup coming up in April and then KetoCon is happening in July. Both of those are in Austin. Um, Chris and the whole family is going to come out. We're going to crash with Judy uh, for the Austin meetup. And then I'm Judy speaking at KetoCon. And then I'm going to fly down uh, for at least part of KetoCon. And so uh, we hope to see some of you guys there. Yeah. Come, come by and say hello. Yeah. Cool. Okay, guys. I hope that this clears a lot of the confusion. I, I mean, I was saying this to, to, I think, Dr. Chafee in a recent interview, but I'm not really sure where, where all this confusion comes. Maybe people are just really into the science and the details and they have these new thoughts and they're just sharing it. But I know it impacts the people when people get scared of, oh my gosh, I can't do carnivore long-term. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it for the short-term or I shouldn't be eating PUFAs, which means that I can only eat grass-finished meats and I can't really afford that. So I, I really think we should just take a step back, eat as clean as possible and not worry about the nuances unless we have to. And when you get there, and if you get there, then you can worry about PUFAs, you can worry about eating more lean proteins. But I I assure that most of us will never have those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. 
you can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura Spath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. <laughs>